Hello and welcome to the latest episode from Tech Salescraft. Our mission is simple. We want to bring you exclusive insight from some of the brightest and most influential minds in the tech sales scene. We want this podcast to be your weekly go-to for inspiration. And if this is your first time listening to the show, please subscribe to keep up to date with all the latest releases. Welcome to the latest episode from Tech Salescraft. And today I'm really excited to be joined by James Kerr-Reed from over at Sales for Startups. The idea of this podcast is to talk to leaders to help advise and guide businesses, tech startups to Series B funding. And uh, James, you do a lot of fantastic work with people at kind of that pre-seed and Series A to help them basically get the best start to get onto that journey. So as a way of getting started, it'd be great to hear about yourself and what you guys do. Yeah, thank you very much for having me. So yeah, as you correctly said, we're in that sort of five to 50 market of tech startups, the pre-seed to series A. So anyone that's raised from sort of 250,000 up to about 15 million on average of funding. Yeah, so our, our companies will be wanting to get to Series B, mm-hmm. um, which is obviously a major milestone. And, and probably the one beyond that is probably the, one of the most important ones for an IPO or exit of Series C. Yeah. So I can understand, obviously, the probability of an exit always increases as you go up the funding rounds. And a lot of our founders want to get there. Yeah. But it's how do they get there? You know, how do you build a team and an operation that can get you from early stage investment to becoming a recognized player in your industry at, say, Series B or Series C level? Interesting. So through speaking to a lot of founders and chief revenue officers who have been on that journey and achieved Series B funding, a lot of it is spoken about is achieved in the early stage before they get to, to Series A. You, you, you state yourself that only 7% of tech startups actually get to Series A. Only 20% of companies who receive Series A ever get to Series B. What do you see are the key reasons to organisations not getting to Series A that you're in there and helping with when talking to these clients? Yeah, I think the biggest reason is being able to make the transition from a founder-led sales environment to a team-led sales environment. And I use the word sales quite openly and generically there. I'm talking about sales, marketing, and customer success. Basically, anything that would sell your product or software, that's really what I'm referring to as sales. So I do use it quite colloquially in my addresses, but uh, maybe because of our brand name being sales startups as well. I'm not sure. From your experience then, because this is, we, we hear this a lot, and, and one of the key things, particularly VCs have said to me, is that a tech business sounds, stands a greater chance of success if, when they get to Series A, there is a repeatable sales process that is not led by the founder. Yep. At what point in a startup life should a founder be going from the product? Because sometimes they'll say, a product takes about three iterations before you're at the point where you've got what you want, uh, which is what clients are going to buy, people are going to spend money on. So it, from your experience, from where you've seen success, when should a founder be thinking about sales and when should he be or she be thinking about bringing other people in to take over the sales side of things? 
Yeah, I think for me, there are two different journey points to answer those two questions. Right. The, the first one is when they start to receive external investment, whether that's angel funding, family and friends, you know, early serial and often, um, you know, ex-entrepreneurs who invest in startup companies, which would typically be a pre-seed yeah. startup, should be thinking about sales is your first question. So soon as you're getting that 100, 200, 500K, whatever it may be wow. of angel funding, you need to be thinking about how do I take this product to market? How do I you know, make sure that this works? Obviously, the easier answer to that question is you should think about it even before you design the product. But that hopefully, although unfortunately, shouldn't go without saying, but, you know, you've got to be thinking about does this solve a real problem and who it solved for? And hopefully you would have designed a product with that intent in mind. So. I think in practice, it'd be premature of me to say, when you create a product, think about sales because, you know, that that should hopefully be part of your repertoire. But pre-seed, think about sales, think about getting those first few customers. That's where you've got that uh, premise and that interest from angel investors to almost they sort of throw the gauntlet down and they say, okay, we'll give you some that early capital. Let's go out and see if you can get your first five or 10 customers. Say it's mid-market or an enterprise I'm referring to. Yeah. If it's kind of SME or low deal value, that might be your first 100 customers or 100 users as an example. But the, the point still stays the same is that you need proof of value. You need yeah. evidence that people are prepared to pay for your product or software or your platform the second question around when should founders start to transition and move away from the frontline selling effort it is a transition and what i mean by that is you will see yourself being involved in the sales process at different times. So at the early stage, you'll be from sort of from start to finish. Obviously, as you progress and you get more people on board, your influence will go further down the funnel towards you know, the end or the close of the deal. So I would say that a seed level is where you really have got the resources to properly build a team. You know, the average UK round at the moment is just over a million for a seed round. And that is a big payoff for, for example, someone that's raised 250,000, 300,000 that mostly is spent in product development. And also at pre-seed level, a lot of the finance is actually um, kind of conditional funding. So it might be Innovate UK, it might be really squared off as product development. And therefore investing in commercial hires like sales or marketers will be a challenge anyway. So yeah, most likely at seed round, we start to transition from founder-led into a team-led operation. How often do you see founders when you go into conversations with them because they probably haven't got experience of selling software, they have ideas, they're, they're very technical focused. How often do you go in and see that actually they've developed something that they think is great, but isn't necessarily what people want to buy? And you have to say to them, actually, you've got something great there for what you're interested in, but it's not a product market fit and that you have to work on them to create the right thing for what people are actually going to want to buy. Yeah, very often. I mean, I think first and foremost, if you look at the experience of tech founders, at least in mm -hmm. our space of B2B tech startups, about 70% of founders don't come from a sales and marketing yeah. background. So that inherent problem is going to be there in terms of really designing something and also having that 
kind of market first rather than product first approach is unfortunately going to most likely be a second consideration. But I think the real problem in terms of designing something that people will buy and obviously they will spend their hard-earned money on is really a case of use case definition. Yeah. It's not often that, I mean, there are cases where they've designed a product that has no commercial value at all. I'm not really going to speak too much about those, uh, that population, but the, the kind of secret source is around use case definition. So what you'll find, especially at the pre-seed level, is that you've got this experimentation phase where they're trying to understand we've got this product and maybe we had sort of initial pilot customer or maybe it was my previous employer or, you know, referral from one of our early investors, but they really struggle to identify what is the use case here, which, you know, which department or what type of companies, what type of persona would this really bring value to and, and what value would that bring and, and over what time scale would that value be received? Those things are really, yeah, unclear, um, especially in the early stage. And we see that even in seed level as well, I think, because seed sometimes has quite a melting pot or a mix of different customers yeah. from different segments, different industries, different use cases. Uh, sometimes, especially then when you've received sort of confirmation bias yeah. of a million or two million in funding, you sometimes think, yeah, we've got something great here. But actually, when you look at the use cases, you're selling sort of five to seven use cases across the 11 customers. And yeah. you think, well, this is a bit messy. This is not as refined as we thought it would be. There's clearly a market opportunity here because people are purchasing it. But what is that one or two use cases we could take to market to get us to Series A and then probably three case use cases to Series B and then, then maybe up to sort of five to seven at, at Series C? When you're going into having these conversations with these founders, how- where's their mindset at because what it appears to be is that there seems to be a lot of cases where founders see sales as a cost they feel that most people will probably want to buy their products because they obviously think it's it's great and how do you work to kind of it's do you see that firstly and foremost as a, as a true statement and and if it is how do you change their mind to, to realign their focus on, on actually what how important the sales engine is? Yeah, I think there is certainly quite a bit of education to be done around sales. I think sometimes when you're not very experienced with things, you have a sense of detachment to that task or to that domain. You see that, for example, in finance, taking a lateral example. Yeah. You know, if you're not very comfortable with finances, you will not look at your bank statement. You won't look at your zero account that frequently. Yeah. You won't start drawing down reports and look at average metrics because you're almost afraid of it. You've got a slight fear about it. And I think the same could be said for sales sometimes is that we we create a sort of barrier or divide between the product and the sales efforts. So I think the value of sales and also in B2B tech sales, it's often the challenge of really B2B tech sales as in building a tech sales operation that can be predictable and scalable. That takes some real foresight, takes some work. It takes delivering on deadlines as well, where in the early stages, 
sometimes you know we're quite accustomed to things you know turning up late or or not working on time whereas one there's more eyes on the company and its progress through outside investment as well as your own maturity as a founder as you've been doing it maybe for two or three years at this point or maybe longer you think i really need to get this going i really need to make this work but sales yeah is something that you know a lot of people sometimes will you know, I think some devalue, it could be said at some point. I think there are quite a few stereotypes out there still in people's mind around sales, which is a mix sometimes between lead generation and marketing. And I think also, you know, to signs consistently say 50K, 100K deals, you know, month in, month out is takes some doing. And, you know, it's not a case of just, Let's blast and and you know pray um, as the that will come back to us. It's a bit more strategic than that. In your mind, I've seen a few times over the the, the last few years where I think some um, founders have become a little bit more savvy towards it, but they've gone out and hired a big hitting CRO to come in and suddenly expect that to be the magic wand, which it isn't. And and you see there is a a short kind of lifespan for most sales leaders within tech startups and i think that's a little bit of the personnel that's that's been hired but a lot of it is around the process and the setups beforehand why do you think it's important for an organization like you to come in which i believe is right for everything under series a Mm. um what do you guys offer at that point and when is the right time to start hiring salespeople? and in your mind what does that footprint look like? So does it start with a VP or does it start with salespeople and then build up from there? Yeah, really good question. So just to reiterate my understanding of the question around you know, the time in which it's right to maybe hire that VP of sales or CRO type of profile. And when do you start hiring sales and marketing people in these uh, B2B tech companies? So with that in mind, I think, there's an element here of balancing, you know, risk and return. So in the early stages, our sort of uh, gateway zone of pre-C to series A, we've proven that hiring a VP of sales or CRO is not the best timing. We're all for hiring VPs of sales. We actually hire them for our clients. (laughs) So we're, we're, we're definitely flying the flag of of great sales leaders. Um, But we think there's a kind of sequence to success i.e. you'll hear my team talk about getting VP ready. Yeah. is often what we refer to, and it seems to resonate with our clients in that there is a right time. But I think typically people are hiring VPs of sales too early. I think there's also a distinction between a VP of sales and CRO, and maybe we can come on to that later. And also there's another distinction as well that should be pointed out is there's also a distinction between a head of sales and a VP of sales as well, Uh, different kind of caliber and level of experience and skills. But even with that in mind, I would say that typically the best time to hire that VP of sales is around series A. Um, The reason for that is that you have some of the foundations put in place. I think the way I talk about it to my friends outside the industry, it's a bit like turning up to a football game and you turn up at, you know, maybe the FA cup final and you walk into the changing rooms and there's, there's no kit 
yeah. uh, available for you to wear. There's no, there's no boots, there's no shorts, there's no shirt in which to play that FA Cup final. Now, that's basically what we do when we hire in technology, unfortunately, at the moment, is what we pit these VPs of sales, very highly qualified, very talented individuals that can come into these companies. And we expect them to turn up into an environment that is so ill-defined, unstructured. There's no kit bag, as I mentioned before, available. There's no tools, there's no leverage in which these people to use in order to grow that company. There's no sometimes even team available. We did a survey amongst, you know, over 100 B2B tech sales leaders just in London recently. We asked, would you, simple question, would you prefer a team uh, when you start your first day as a VP of sales? Or would you have no team as a VP of sales? Now, probably... You know, the, the answer is maybe obvious to some, but 93% of all those, you know, votes, I think it was something like 206 votes we got just from London B2B wow. tech sales leaders. So 93% said they would like a team, i.e. people in which to operate, to coach, to mentor, yeah. rather than be a lone wolf player manager. I mean, it's a bit more than that these days when you hire a, a single person. It's like player, manager, coach, mentor, strategist, recruiter. You're, you're probably spread across five or six different plates. Yeah. But I think there are a series A on that end. I think the coming back to your earlier question on the people, I think the seed is a really good time in which to hire and to give people an indication of what type of roles they would be. I would think that most B2B tech startups that, sell you know products of at least you know say a thousand pounds per month as an example and upwards would be looking at a bdm uh, as a starting point to shift over the sales effort um, i think they are normally supported by an sdr um, in order to generate um, outbound leads but also to follow up sometimes on inbound leads and lead qualification I think that the SDR, the first SDR is sometimes, you know, a bit of both inbound and outbound. And then, you know, laterally as well, you would be looking to hire sort of marketing managers and, you know, customer success. But the, the great point is, is that inheriting a team where you have, for example, you know, some BDMs or account executives, as they're often now known these days, these are new business professionals that sign contracts, you know, month after month, quarter after quarter. You know, to go into that environment it sort of makes my eyes open as a sales leader to go in and, and to be having something to work with. It's like, yeah, turning up at some sort of family reunion and no one's there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's like what the feeling is sometimes of these uh, leaders. And I think it's incredibly difficult, challenging, sort of isolating place as a VP of sales walking in and you're supposed to sign yeah. deals, you're supposed to build the operation, you're supposed to do everything. I, I know it can work, but the, the success rates are so low. And also, is that the best option as well? I totally agree. There's a few bits I'd like to sort of like home in on the, the detail around that because I think there are occasions where it does work. Normally when you're, you've got a VP or a CRO who's been on the journey, he's had success and they're coming back in to go again. But if you get to Series A and you bring in your VP of sales then, who is responsible for writing the playbook? And because you want a repeatable sales process, particularly once you're, you're getting to Series A, because 
all founders will go for the maximum they can get for their organization. And that comes with usually quite high revenue targets out the other side. And it's normally all the excitement builds up in the last few weeks. The money arrives, there's high fives, it's like brilliant. And then the next day it's suddenly like, oh my God, we've got 365 days to find X amount of of revenue. So if you bring in the VP at that point, who is responsible for setting you up to succeed? Because, um, and correct me if I'm wrong, because you are the experienced person there. You can't be writing a playbook at Series A, can you? Yeah, I mean, we believe that you can. I think you can, obviously a playbook is like a maturity scale, right? You, You might go from good to great from Series A to B. But imagine, and this is obviously the joy of my company, is that you imagine being a VP of sales, walking in, you've got a team, you've got you know, account executives, you've got SDRs, you've got customer success managers, yeah. you might have one or two marketing managers as well. And you walk in and you've got explanation of how you generate leads, you know, what your sales process is, what are the activities at each stage of the process? You know, what are some of the top most successful uh, customers in your company? What journey did they go through? What's the timeline to value? What are the features in your product that create value? And when do they create them, say, in the first, you know, 365 days? These are things that we as sales leaders, you know, would dream of having. And this is something that my company, you know, we make our living from is setting up those VPs of sales to succeed, right? Is we talk about being VP ready, but it's also, you know, ensuring that that VP themselves are VP ready as well. So we don't like seeing leaders go into companies and fail. That was also one of the founding reasons of the company was that, We'd all been there in that very sort of silo-esque, isolated environment where we take all our problems home. There's no one else to speak to and asked to sort of magic things out of thin air. And I think you can create a playbook, you know, sort of series A, and then you create one that at least is good in rating. That might be harsh, but at least good in rating and then take it to great as that VP of sales because they will be able to fine tune it. We, We talk internally about this phrase we use a lot to illustrate this philosophy, which is, is a lot easier to edit than create. Yeah. And that's what we believe as well, the environment that we create for these VPs of sales and CROs, you know, in the future in our in our clients, because yeah. I'd rather come in and, and edit. It's a bit like, you know, a really simple example. Imagine you're writing a content piece. You know, you might have a quick call with your marketing manager, um, agree on some bullet points, you know, on that Zoom call. Then they go away and they write the article and then they come back to you in order to edit it and maybe you know, yeah. put emphasis on one or two points. But they've done 80, maybe 90 percent of the work already. Yeah. And they're also then they all go and publish it on your WordPress website and get it out to social as an yeah. example. That's the kind of philosophy we have internally is like. So we get you to that point where all you're doing is just tweaking a couple of the dials. But the, the challenge is in the pre-seed to series A market, you don't even have the dials in which to turn. Yeah. So you imagine it as like maybe there's 10 dials or, or we talk about sort of nine cylinders, but nine cylinders to tweak. 
if you don't even have that those those cylinders are just like black holes you can't turn the dial on the cylinder that's not there yeah. so yeah but if you do have it moving it two three five percent and moving across seven or eight that's where you get the kind of compound growth effect and you see yeah. these companies growing you know two three four five hundred percent per year because you can make subtle changes and it makes a big difference to the bottom and the top line you're talking to these organizations about bringing in a salesperson's a bdm senior sales however you, you people want to, to call them how are you helping because one of the key things i know that most tech leaders want to get hiring right more often and mm-hmm. it's an area where i think it's 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 easier to get hiring of a developer right because you give them a technical test you can quite easily see where the level of expertise are at sales is it's it's a little bit more challenging because yes, you can look at where someone's been successful before, but that doesn't mean they're going to be successful within your organization. There's a lot that surrounds why someone is successful. As you mentioned, most founders won't come from a sales background. So how do you help them hire the right people or know that they are investing in the right people that are coming in at this critical stage to get their annual recurring revenue to the right points before we get to series a yeah really good point really good point and uh certainly not an easy process to hire people right Uh, i mean you and i wouldn't be here really if if it was so easy so yeah i think in terms of first and foremost let's just start with diagnosing the problem correctly okay we've got we want to go from a to b Okay, that could be from revenue X to Y as well. Um, Say from one to two million, as an example, from 500K to a million, as as some examples in seed level, as an example, from seed to series A. So with that in mind, how are we going to do that? Now, that is the big question that my company often solves, right? How do we go from A to B? And that's not just a simple answer. There are quite a few different elements to that. There are strategies, there's the proposition, there's the people, and there's the processes, the three Ps we refer to that accelerate that growth. But within the people segment, you've got to understand, by bringing this person in, what are you hoping to achieve with that? And for me, what that looks like in practice is you've got to create what I call a scorecard yeah. in order to understand by hiring this person, what are the outcomes that I believe that they can achieve? And that would be sort of three to five outcomes to give you, you know, an inkling. And we've written quite a lot about this as well with Team Taylor, which is our sort of um, software partner on this yeah. topic. And then from that point, you understand why you're hiring the role, what they're trying to achieve, what you anticipate, what are some of the objectives and the key results as well underneath those objectives. So it's like a OKR kind of scorecard framework as well for role specific, but also at the top level, company specific, i.e. what you anticipate them to achieve and the company to achieve as a result of the hire. So once you've done that, you then want to go into obviously sourcing the role and, mm-hmm. and you know, that an expert like yours is perfect in doing that. Then it comes down to the screening and selection. Now that is the harder bit. And that's where, 
you know, even as an ex-sales recruiter myself, that is not something that I was an expert at before. And that's also, unfortunately, something our clients weren't experts in before. And probably I would have been better off if they were. Yeah. But that's what we help as well. Our, our sort of role in this process is the selection process, because we believe that's where the value comes from in terms of the actual talent selection and obviously the onboarding and ramping. So to, to break that down a couple more layers in terms of selection, that would be, you know, a structured interview process that are involve, you know, core questions that are logged and tracked throughout the process as you go through that. It would include assessment as well. So that would be a task-driven thing. And there are quite a few good assessments you could run on salespeople, sales leaders, and marketing managers as well, and customer success individuals. Mm -hmm. And then finally, I would say you've got a psychometric part of it as well, which is, you know, can be both culturally as well as skill-based. And we like to combine the two as well when we talk about psychometrics, because I want to know whether that person's going to be a great blend for my company personality-wise, but also I want to know whether they actually have the skills. And the assessment is obviously part of that, but that's more a kind of scenario-based assessment, I would say. Mm -hmm. um, whereas we're looking at kind of skill-based assessments in the psychometrics and, we've uh, you know done a lot of work on that in order to drive that so they're the kind of three elements of there and then obviously from there you've got the onboarding and the ramping of that individual and that's not easy either because there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of poor practices with regards yes. to onboarding i've been subject to about five or six myself in my career and uh, i wouldn't want to display all of those publicly as well as to how bad they were but yeah it's really important that you get the onboarding right and you look at that onboarding plan you know that's that's going to be very difficult for a founder of not a sales and marketing background to write that that's that's way outside their comfort zone a couple of uh, cro's said to me and see whether you you sounds like you might back their point on this is that some leaders are better at hiring than they think they are they're just rubbish once they've arrived and they basically think they can say there's your laptop off you go and do it and the critical part of the onboarding where people actually know what they're looking to achieve and and also the ongoing support after that so even if you've got great sales guys that hit their target time and time again they can't be left because eventually they run out. So would you be on that side that actually people probably have some great talent within them, but they just haven't done the right stuff with those salespeople once they've arrived and started? Yeah, I would agree with that. I think obviously it's hard to have both, but there are certainly some individuals that are better at what I would call talent spotting yeah. and other people that are better at nurturing talent yeah. and you know, I think that obviously you need both in which to succeed, really, because you, yeah. you need people that, you know, are skilled and have great potential and obviously a good fit for the company. But also you need to nurture that talent. I think the nurture is probably it's the greatest area of gain, but it's also one of the hardest areas in which to master. Whereas talent spotting, there are easier sort of triggers and, and flags that you can run through. Whereas nurturing talent is, you know, a blend of multiple skills as well that you've got to do and core things like emotional intelligence, which we're all working on. We're all trying to improve as leaders and even core, a core skill like that is not something you, you know, you, you get overnight as a, as a leader, right? It, it's always matured, developed and improved. 
one of the interesting things that I I found from talking to a number of founders who tried hiring a VP of sales, not got it right, and they looked to, to, to bring in a, another VP of sales. And when you, when they walk you through their process and their interview process, I'm constantly surprised that the amount of sales processes that don't involve questioning the VP of sales around their coaching, their, their ability to spot talent to generate A players and hold on to salespeople. It's always spoken about what was your target? What did you achieve it? How quickly did you achieve it without really looking into the team or did they arrive into a team that was already smashing it out of the park? And is that right for, for, for what they're looking to do there? Do you see that? What advice would you give to founders if they are looking to interview for a VP of sales of actually what are the critical components that they should be digging into to find out if they're right or not yeah i i just wanted to pick up on your subtle distinction at the end as well around the 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 difference as well of picking up those key components i think the thing is is that with vps of sales it's quite easy to test them on their numbers yeah but there's not a lot of education practice i mean i i sort of learn a lot of my selection skills, obviously through experience, but also a lot through reading as well. You know, one of the books I've loved as well, reading was a Jeff Smart's book called Who. Um, really, really liked it about the selection process. And that was one of my favorite books yeah. that I read some years ago. But I think, yeah, to, to look at the test, I think you've got to look at the team, um, you know, what team they inherited, mm-hmm. You know, even at high level, some of the questions is what were their roles? You know, how would you rank them as kind of A, B and C players as well? You know, what was the performance of quota when when you started as well? What time was they finished? You know, these are things even to start, you know, a conversation is really yeah. important because I think sometimes and I've been in that environment, right, where I've been in a fast growth company and, you know, we went from being an outsider to then, you know, being bought out for 500 million. So mm. I know what it's like almost to be on the bandwagon. Yeah. And sometimes, you know, that bandwagon does cover up some of your own weaknesses as well. Yeah. It be said. And I think especially in technology that that's rarely spoken about because it's a sensitive topic because we aren't really that humble often as sales leaders and we're not really prepared to either say that actually everything was going well and, you know, I, I came in and optimized things. And that's OK. There's no, you know, if, if that's what you were brought in to do, that's absolutely fine. But if you're hiring at a different stage, because there are different kind of colors to a, a Series A or a Series B company, at different maturity rates. Mm. If you want someone to come in and really set up a new team and new division, that's obviously going to be a concern. And I think sometimes we, we hire people for their journey when they've gone through and gone through to Series A, B and C rather than actually with the here and now within sales leaders. And I think that's really important. And I think there's also a sense of realism. A lot of people talk about this going back to the journey, right? But let's talk about this in a very transparent way, you know, as sales leaders to founders. So you've gone into a company, 
you've maybe been one of their first hires. You, you might have been something like a high level AE or business development director, first commercial hire. You then get promoted into a sales lead and then you become maybe a VP of sales or CRO for that company over a period of years, right? Now, you know, you may be paid at the point of, especially a sort of series B, series C, your, your pay level might be about 180,000 on the base and somewhere at least 250 to sort of 400 in OTE, right? Then you're saying that that person, after doing that for maybe two or three years at this point at that level, maybe earning at least minimum sort of 250,000 pounds a year with their family and their own things to, to calculate. They're going to go back to a series A company, maybe a, a premature series A company. And some people try and do this at seed level. And they're going to say, would you like to take 80, 90 K as a base? And would you like to have upside in, you know, options which we can't really calculate the value in. And then secondly, also, we're going to do an OTE, but no one has, you know, achieved that number before. Yeah. Um, we've got no track record of actually a VP of sales earning that amount of money. But we've got, you know, a two, three, four X target for this year. And you would, if we hit four X, you would achieve, you know, double base. If we did two X, you would do 50%, etc. I think there's a sense of realism that's got to be had is that that actual percentage of people going from say series B or C mm-hmm. coming back to series A, you know, and starting almost the journey again is actually a very small percentage because when it comes down to it, they, the company is very attractive for those sales leaders. Don't get me wrong. And they actually go into sort of second and third stage interviews. But when it comes down to the crunch, when you ask someone, would you like to take a 70% pay cut? That's that's a bit different. I think sometimes there's that there's sort of this, you know, cloud in people's head that loads of these sales leaders going from earning 250, 300,000 a year, going back to earning 100K a year. It's actually not really the case because why would you go and work for a Series A that's struggling that maybe they might make target, maybe they might not even get Series B funding rather than you can see a company progressing B, C and D rounds, you can move up the, the chain into someone that may be earning more. Maybe you've got more team members. Maybe you've got more resources. You're challenging yourself in different ways. So, yeah, just a sense of realism for me on, on actually what the real state of play is. Obviously, I could delve into the numbers, but, yeah, that's what I see from afar. I- we, we see it as well um, because there's also a lot more opportunity at that kind of CDEFG yeah. kind of level. So there's so many more companies um, going forwards. And, you know, there is the idea they'll go in their interview, but there's just so much choice out there now that they will eventually get the right offer, which is paying them. And also when you look at the demographic of the people and their stage in life, there is normally a lot more outgoings at that point. And you have to be at the point where you can actually financially afford to take the risk to go back. There's the swallowing the pride bit and going and taking the risk. And you have people that will go on a journey. And if they, I always find that if people go on a journey and they get to see, they've decided they're not a startup person anymore. Mm. It's a different world. You're doing a different job. It's more corporate. Um, you're filling more boxes than you are um, hands-on in there and you've, you, you've developed and you've gone to that journey. I think those true startup people will probably get to maybe be cash out 
and go back and start again because that's actually what they uh, what they love. From your experience of when they've been getting to Series A, how often have you found the VCs kind of, and I'll be careful how I word it, kind of influencing decisions by saying, right, be safe and go and find someone who's got experience in that sector rather than finding the right person who's got the skill set? Because I'm a big believer that a VP of sales can be successful in fintech having never sold a product to fintech at the same time you could take a great vp out of fintech and put them in somewhere in e-commerce and be successful but things start to become a little bit more let's play safe and try and bring in someone who's got contacts i mean that it's it's a word that i hate but it's like a black book someone who's been there and done it in that space and it quite often fails how much do you see that? And how easy is it once you guys are in there to say, right, actually, we can get this sorted and the VCs, okay, okay, you, you, I can see you've got that covered. I'm going to leave it to you. Yeah, very interesting question. You know, to pick up on the sort of latter point first around the yeah. Black Book, that is for me so last decade yeah. of the Black Book, I almost sort of cringe. It's almost like, you know, talking about the 80s and yeah. you know, when we first had the laptop or something, it's like, oh, yeah. you know, um, a bit like on-prem and cloud solution makes me yeah. feel now. But um, <laughs> I think, yeah, the, uh, the VC does gain more influence as the company progresses, right? Because the numbers are greater, the influence of them is greater. They're obviously grooming them for other VCs as well, kind of feeder VCs at the Series A level to Series B. And then secondly, obviously, they are in the, their own investment returns, you know, looking at potentially that exit. So I think they do have a lot of influence around you know, recruitment, also board members do as well. There's, there is still a reluctance sometimes to assess a referral in the same way as an open applicant would be assessed. And I'm slightly against that in terms of where I stand on it. I've had times where, you know, my, my guys have had you know, slightly challenging conversations with VCs around, oh, you know, this person did it in our portfolio, company number 24, they can do it at number 48. Well, you know, we don't know that for certain. And also we're going to assess this person just as someone's just applied to the advert and looks good as well. We're going to assess them on the same even keel. Um, And I'm always a big believer in that you know, prior success is not a guarantee of future success as well. And I think that's where a lot of sales leaders go wrong as well, is that they bring, you know, that practice and obviously experience without any filter into that new organization. So they just kind of carbon copy what they've done before. So, yeah, I think that the VCs do have quite a big influence and, also, the founder is in a challenging position as well, because also that's one of their major funders. And if someone says you should hire this person, you know, they probably will save on recruitment fees of that nature as well. And, you know, they, they if that person says they will be good, then they're going to be good because there's a kind of lot of mutual investment going into that hire around the board. But, uh, yeah, I think it's it's something to be wary of as a founder as well as that you do have a sense of fairness in terms of selection of these people. I think also your earlier point around, 
the experience. I think people can move sectors. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm obviously, I would be a complete hypocrite if I said that I'm, uh, you know, you have to have experience before. I've worked in five sectors before and I had no experience prior to that before coming to that uh, sector. So, yeah, I would say um, you can. <laughs> so I'd be a hypocrite. But the the more important thing, though, is the type of cell is really important. Things like the length of cell is also very important. And I would say the personas and the types of departments are important as well. It's very different. You know, when you're selling to a finance director to selling to a sales and marketing director as an important point, you know, if you're selling sort of financial technology um, to an FD and then at the other point you're selling sort of a sales optimization technology like Salesloft, one of our partners, for example, it's going to be quite a different sell. Interesting. There's a couple more questions that I'm keen to get Go for it. Your, your thoughts on uh, before we finish. One thing, there is a key difference now with a lot of technologies coming out where people think they need a superstar salesperson to, to, to run out there and knock on the door and get a load of biz done, particularly you know, around the enterprise um, side of things. But there's a lot of people who are, uh, who are getting a lot of signups and there's also a lot of like, try before you buy. And some businesses, I feel need to invest in customer success first rather than sales. Would you agree with that with some products? And how does a founder differentiate between whether they need a new logo salesperson, which is massively different to a very good customer success person? Yeah, that is a really difficult question because it depends on quite a few things. It depends on, firstly, the capability of the founder themselves. Yeah. So typically a product-led kind of tech-focused uh, founder is often really good at customer success. Some of the founders that I've worked alongside, they've been very good at customer success and they've often obviously signed the first few customers and enabled those customers. And yeah. they've been customers for a year, two, three, four years, even in the early stages. The other thing that it depends on is that it comes down to your sales strategy, right? Yeah. It's like we said earlier, sales to startups, what we made our name for is, okay, how do you go from half a million to a million? How do you go from one to two million? They are really big strategic questions, right? You need a lot of experience and understanding of how a tech company works, how the market works, how to get the best from people, what processes you need in order to answer that question. So it does come down to strategy. And I think there is an overcompensation at the early stage in our market, pre-seed to series A in net new logos. And there's not enough emphasis on customer growth and retention and obviously upsells. But yeah, I think, I think customer success is, is a very important role and, uh, but it does depend in terms of our market, you know, when you should have them, but definitely in, in our market, people would have customer success managers. I think, you know, with, with a SaaS type of purchase, we're almost rolling up a lot of the services income that was previously like an onboarding fee into yep. a license fee. So there's an expectation with that annual multi-year commitment 
for value to be transferred, you know, and managed with a, an individual like a customer success manager through that. And that's an expectation, especially in mid-market enterprise. So people would be a bit disappointed if they didn't have that onboarding and empowerment from that individual. So, yeah, I'd say around seed round is a good time you know, customer success, series A, definitely you will have, you know, a, a couple of customer success managers, hopefully with the volume of clients you've got. And then, yeah, definitely series A to series B, you'd probably be looking into a VP of customer success at that point in time uh, to take on that team. But yeah, I think, I think, yeah, there's sometimes new logos, customer success. I don't think it's either or, you know, I think unfortunately you need both, <laughs> um, especially once you've, you know, raised a significant round at seed and series A, it's not one or the other, but it does come down to your strategy. As I said, again, as the how are you actually going to get from A to B? Is that going to be through existing client growth? I see a lot of, you know, companies in their revenue targets, not pitting in customer account growth into that yeah. revenue number. You know, for example, one of the clients we had a series A going from a million to 2 million, they haven't actually picked customer growth into their projections of their strategy um, over the next 12 months. And, you know, it could be 20, 25% as an example of that number, mm-hmm. typically um, in increased revenue. So, yeah, and actually when you see in B and C, you see a sort of slight switchover effect between net new and customer growth, right? There is a time when you would probably see customer success overtake almost, you know, net new business in terms of revenue, which is a fantastic problem to have. Yeah. I was talking to a CEO uh, who actually came up from the sales side, was a phenomenal sales exec, went into sales leadership and has moved into CEO. And he was talking about, you know, there was a bit of advice that he could give to tech founders is when you get that pre-seed seed funding, ring fence part of it for investing in sales. Yeah. Would you agree with that? And do you actively talk to, to, to your founders to try and put that rather than just seeing it as a necessary cost later? Say, right, actually, you've got to park that. Don't spend it all on developing the product and hiring or outsourcing dev to try and build this wonderful product. Actually park some of it for later. Yeah, I would certainly agree with that. That's good advice. We work with our founders to enable those funding rounds and also even to help from the budgeting and forecasting for those funding rounds is the where will the money be spent if we give you the money? That's a really key question to answer. And, you know, typically you would see, even as an industry average, at least 20 to 25%, you know, that, that would go into to sales, you know, over, over the next sort of 18 to 24 months after the funding round. And, and two final things. Um, Andrew Gazdecki said last week that second-time founders think about revenue, first-time founders think about company value. Would you tend to agree with that statement? What does it mean by company value? Uh, so the value of the business. As in for the funding rounds, is he referring to there? or I think, he's, I think yeah. So basically, the, each funding round you get to, they're thinking about the valuation of their company at that funding round. Yeah, I've seen that. I mean, I spoke to a second-time founder that 
had raised a seed round actually recently. And, you know, the company, they didn't get their next funding round and actually folded and now start up a new company. And I think they do become more commercial in their mindset. And coming back to your earlier point around allocating funds from a funding round to sales and marketing costs, yeah. uh, I think is, is really spot on. And I think they are more commercially minded. I think I'd almost say that they are product first <laughs> and then they are, you know, revenue first yeah. um, with regards to a, uh, you know, second time round funders. They do think about also they delay funding typically a little bit longer. Yeah. Uh, you know, I know you, you've spoken to, you know, friends of mine like Anthony Rose as yeah. well. And, you know, they did a really good job in actually sort of delaying some of those funding rounds to, yeah you know, then they got to a point where they could raise a really good sum at a good valuation. Um, Because you've also got the confidence. It's like you've got maturity now or, you know, a couple of battle scars and and you know uh, what you need to do next. If there was one key bit of advice that you could give to a a tech founder who's at pre-seed funding now that you've learned from your experience of getting these organisations to where they are, what would that be? Yeah, I would say, how much time are you spending on getting your next few customers? Yeah. And how deliberate are those actions? I think that goes for seed in series A. I think, you know, what one of our um, CEOs, which is um, a company called Expandly, a Mercia portfolio company, recently told us as well as that, you know, we, we definitely moved them up a couple of gears. You know, in sales, I think sometimes... There's a lack of intensity. And I think the the real bridge point there is that sometimes founders that, from a non-sales and marketing background are sometimes going down the, the low risk route, which is hiring quite inexperienced people to do quite sophisticated roles at a time when things are ill-defined. And so what actually happens is that, you know, the intensity and that kind of sales culture that they often crave as founders is not there. Yeah. Um because there's a gap between their leadership skills and experience and also the people they've hired, there's also a a gap in their leadership and experience as well. So you get a kind of doubling up effect. So, yeah, I think be intentional with sales. Think about, you know, those primary use cases, your product, and really test and and get those next couple of customers. I think it's really key at the early stages. At the latter part, for those seed and series A founders, my advice would be, um, you know, the, the team is everything, really. You know, you, you've got to select, you've got to onboard, you've got to train, you've got to nurture the right talent in order to get to the next level. Otherwise, you know, the, the sales process is just almost a person's role on steroids, right? It's like my, my ability say, as a salesperson with a sales process is optimized. You know, the process doesn't make me better. The, the process is actually the other way, right? It just makes me um, more efficient and effective in my role. James, it's been great talking to you. Um, as always, learn so much. If there's any uh, founders or sales leaders who are listening to this and uh, actually understanding and um, think actually they could probably do with uh, a conversation with you guys how does somebody go about getting hold of you or, or one of your colleagues to have a conversation yeah i think obviously you can check out our website which is an easy place to find it's salesforstartups.co.uk you can find us on linkedin as well awesome all right thank you very much for your time i really appreciate it taking because i know it's a, it's a really busy uh, time at the moment so thank you very much 
Thank you, James. Really appreciate it. Please click subscribe, like, leave a comment and turn on your notifications. We really love you to be involved with the tech sales craft and being part of the growing community. Thank you for being part of our journey.